So first of all, I just want to thank everyone for being here today. Um, as you can see, our dev chat setup is slightly different to how it usually is. Um, and the reason behind that is that we have decided to take a deeper look into the content that we are producing at SovTech. Many of you know that last year, towards the end of the year, we, we released our SovTech podcast. So the reason behind um, creating the podcast was not only to create a space where the world could have access to some of the brilliant minds at SovTech, but also to share with the world some of the things that we speak about and learn about on a daily basis. So what we have decided to do is invite some external guests um, into the office to speak to everyone. And here um, we've decided that this series would be a good idea because um, not only will they help us learn and upskill uh, sharing their expertise with us, but we'll also be able to share this awesome information with the rest of the world. So our first guest of the series is Jeff Bickford. Um, Jeff has a rich background in research, being very involved in um, the, the corporate environment. Um, after realizing that there was a great need for um, empathetic design thinking in every industry, Jeff started his company Lively. Lively is a human-centered company that focuses on research, design thinking and facilitation. Um, and Lively empowers other businesses to tackle their major issues um, with empathy and collaboration. So yeah, I think this is a great time to welcome Jeff up um, and thank you for being here today. I want to clap for that. That was amazing. Um, uh, I think Dara described me better than I can describe myself. Um, happy Friday to everyone. I hope you've had a good week and a, and a good Friday uh, so far. Um, I, I've been hanging around for the, last, for the last couple of weeks. So some of you might see me and think, geez, this guy's been loitering on Fridays uh, for a few weeks now. Who is he? What is he doing? Um, and, uh, and, and really just kind of started as a catch up, but then uh, through, through discussion, through, through kind of listening and, and perhaps a more kind of empathetic discussion got to this point where I'm able to come here and very excited to be here to present uh, and, and discuss, I suppose, I hope with you, um, some of the thinking that's informed my journey and, and where I'm at and what Lively is trying to offer as a business. Um, I'd like to kick off with a, with a little exercise, if, if that's okay. So I understand two people have been briefed, so thank you. You will be part of an experiment, uh, which, is, which is something in design thinking that's, uh, that's really favored, this idea of experimentation. So if those two people who've, who've valiantly offered to come and be part of my experiment could come to the front now, please, that would be, that would be wonderful. And if we've lost one, you might, uh, you might be pulled in on the spot. Okay, awesome. So if you could, if you could just um, each stand in, in one, of these, uh, one of these little circles that are on the ground, that's perfect. And just have an opportunity to introduce yourself, um, your name, the team you work in at SovTech, and something that inspires you. Uh, so, hey everyone. <laughs> I'm Sanvir Desai. Uh, I work in the product advanced team within SovTech. Uh, and something that inspires me is the objectivity of tech. Fantastic, you've done superbly. Uh, next. Hi everyone, I am Kellyanne. I work for the Blueprint Design Team 
and something that inspires me is helping people and providing solutions for companies. And okay, yeah. fantastic. So now if you, if you imagine that, uh, and you can, yeah, so Luke can take the mic. You, if you imagine that, now the, the little space you're standing in is your team space. It's your land. It, it's the team that you work in. I want to ask you now to swap. So to, to, for you to go and stand in that land and for you to come and stand in this land. And, and because, because this isn't my world, you're going to have to then introduce which land you are now standing in and which land you are now standing in. Is that clear? So which team are you now standing in and a part of and which team are you a part of? Cool. So I am now standing in the advanced team uh, space. Is that it? Advanced team space. Yeah, advanced Brilliant. team. Yeah. Okay. I'm now standing in the blueprint team space. <laughs> in the blueprint team space. Yeah. Okay. So now I'd like you can hold on to that mic. Just for a couple of seconds, close your eyes and imagine everything you know about the land that you're standing in now. What people are like, what they experience, how they come across, what they sweat over. Just imagine, just imagine everything that, that the people in the land you're standing in now are going through. So downloading all the data that you know about observing others, watching others. Okay, great. And now we can start, sorry, your name again? Uh, Sanvir. Sanvir. Yeah. We can start with Sanvir. If you can share how that experience of reflecting on what, what people in this land go through, now what you go through, how does that make you feel? Can you describe how you feel having reflected on, on what you've just thought about in your mind? How does it make you feel? Can you describe how you feel? How do I feel based on what... This land experiences or what? What this I land experience. experiences, what you've just experienced running through your mind. How does that make you uh, feel? Makes me feel like it's difficult. <laughs> um, yeah, difficult, challenging, but also uh, interesting. Um, yeah. And feelings? Feelings. How do you feel having experienced feel? that? Mm. Neutral. <laughs> you feel neutral. 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 <laughs> so when things yeah. are challenging, difficult, you feel neutral. Uh, yeah. Okay. So. Well, uh, or I feel excited to be able to try the challenge. Excited to be able to try the challenge. Yeah. Okay. Cool. You can pass the mic over. And cool. sorry, your name again? Kelly. Kelly. Yeah. Kelly, if you can do the same, if you can, if you can share how that made you feel to run through the things that, that you understand about the land that you, you're standing in currently? So it, it made me feel a bit anxious just because I don't understand the processes in this team as well as I'd like to. And also to be in advance, you're going to be working with clients on an, an existing platform. So it also makes me a bit wary as I don't really know where, how we would communicate this with the client and I need to learn. But I am excited to also learn and get stuck in and help where I can. Fantastic. So the feelings there are anxious, weary, excited. Yeah. And then there's a bit of description around that. Great. Yeah. Now, if you can hold the mic, Kelly, and yeah. you can express what you think people say about people in this team. So what do people say about you? What are the kinds of things that others <laughs> in Sovtech are saying about you in um, this team? Not so, Kelly. Yeah. The, 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 the Kelly team, the advanced team. team. Yes. So I think 
people are saying that this team um, has a lot of work to do because they're taking an existing platform instead of building it from scratch. So there might be a lot of problems or bugs to be resolved. Um, also just to, yeah, just, to, <laughs> it's a bit difficult. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that would be okay, yeah. that's 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 perfect. <laughs> can pass the mic over and the same thing. What are, what are people saying, people in SovTech, what are they saying about the team who lives in this land? Uh, probably that they're pretty hardworking and uh, also pretty uh, adaptive, being able to uh, look at new requirements and change their point of view within a short space of time based on what's the most effective at that time. Fantastic. Can we give San, San, Sanvir, is that right? Sanvir. Sanvir and, and Kelly a big round of applause, please. Thank you. So that's it. That's, that's my experiment to kick us off. But that is essentially a small, small exercise in, in empathy. It's about standing in somebody else's shoes for a short time. That's taken us, what, a couple of minutes and and perhaps there's a heightened awareness about now what other teams are doing, what other teams are experiencing, not even based on, on kind of uh, synthesized data, just on the data that we possess intuitively and we hold because we work in the same place and we see and we hear and we have all of these sensory things going on. So this was just an exercise where you deliberately process that information and you start to understand what somebody working in the same organization as you might be experiencing that you have to work with, that you often don't find the time or energy to think about, yeah? So it's, I mean, it's a real honor and a privilege to be here, to be able to be the, the first person in, the, in, in this series to speak. Um, uh, the, the few hours that I've spent kind of lingering around on, I don't know if it's just a Friday thing, but the energy at SovTech is palpable. Um, Lots of smiles, clearly kind of energized teams. I even got to hear one of those buzzers go off when I was here last Friday, which, is, which was really cool. Um, uh, and, and, and just really excited to be here. So, um, so thank you for the opportunity and thanks for coming to listen. So the talk today, as you would have seen, is about, I want to talk about people. I want to talk about love, love stories. Uh, and I want to talk about process. And some of the people I'll talk about I know, some of them I don't know, uh, but, but each of them has impacted my life and, I, and I'd like to share that with you today. So I'm Jeff Bickford. Uh, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a researcher and a storyteller. Um, and most recently I'm an entrepreneur. And, and I could have introduced myself differently. I could have said I'm I'm Jeff Bickford. Uh, growing up, I loved playing water polo. I played water polo for South Africa. Um, I'm a triathlete. I've completed three half Ironmen uh, and I follow a plant-based diet. Or I could have introduced myself as I'm Jeff Bickford. Uh, I am an urban transport planner by training. I have served as, as an executive in a nonprofit company that, that, that supports municipalities. And I, I was on the dean's list at Wits University in the years that I studied in my degree. Each one of those triggers something within each of you. Depending on how I introduce myself, 
you gravitate towards an understanding, your understanding of me, based on the information that I've shared with you. Now, everything that I've shared with you is factual and true, to me at least, from my perspective. But if any of you had to track my life, you might find out information about me that I haven't shared that you think is very valid to share about myself. And so there's just an, a really useful example of, of how information about people can be used and interpreted. And the way that we package that information tells us something, uh, tells us something about the people that we see in front of us, what we hear them say, what we observe, etc. You're probably wondering what the hell has this got to do with this little bicycle on the screen. Uh, so, as I said, I'm an urban transport planner by training. That training led me through a process where I essentially fell in love with the bicycle as a primary mode of transport uh, for sustainable futures. And any city that you go to in the world that's getting that right is, is really at the cutting edge of ensuring life for, for their communities into the future. The cities that aren't are really in trouble. And so really kind of fell in love with, with the bicycle. And what's up there is my daughter's bicycle. That's a picture, obviously, of my daughter's bicycle. But the first bike is a story of design thinking in and of itself. A man by the name of, I'm going to try and do this name justice, uh, Rolf Kuhlschutter, a German cyclist, product designer, and father, came up with this bike. Now, his product design background is the thing that allowed him to design the product. But his experience as a cyclist and as a father are the things that allowed him to design the best bike that's ever been built for toddlers. And I want to pick up on that later. And my daughter, she is just turned three. I mean, she rides, she rides that thing like you can't believe, a balanced bike. It's supposed to be the best, the best new thing in, in toddler cycling, which is a thing. It's a real thing. So I want to share another love story. In picture is a, a, a young Daniel Kahneman and an Amos Tversky. Some of you might be familiar with who these two people are. Others, maybe not, and that's fine. I only, I only came to know about them a couple of years ago. But these are the two behavioral psychologists who the term is uh, change the way about the way that we think. Change the way we think about the way that we think. Yeah? And they were the first two social scientists to win an economics Nobel Prize. What did they discover in their, in their seminal work? That in fact the human brain does not compute information statistically optimally. So we like to think that because we're experts and we've trained ourselves, that we can compute things statistically optimally. They proved that in fact there's a set of heuristic biases in our brain that mean that cognitively we bias a lot of our thinking. So when I introduced myself, immediately many of you would have gone back to, okay, I'm okay, and then packaged, packaged me into something that you think. And as I changed that introduction, your own cognitive bias was packaging you. And, and if, if you can imagine the sports jock at school, when I introduced myself in that way, there was a, there was a natural bias to a packaging. So our brain computes information like that largely on emotion and not on statistical objectivity. And that's what they came up with. So this, this exposure to, these, to, to the work of, um, of Kahneman and Tversky really was one of the big enlightening moments in my life to help me understand people as, 
as somebody who often has to interact with people as all of us do, but really get a deeper understanding of the way that, the, that human beings are conditioned in their, in their brains and their ability to, to process information. And what it means to be an expert became quite an interesting, um, interesting thought for me. On the same line of thinking, I'd like to share another love story. Uh, I don't know. I'm, maybe I like romantic. I'm hoping they're romantic comedies and not romantic tragedies. But this is a story about an architect in the, in the, in the field that I worked in. Architects typically build buildings. That's what they, they are trained to design buildings. That's at the, at the nub of it. I mean, they're trained to design wonderful looking buildings that, that are emotive, but they're trained to design buildings. And it was Jan Gull, who is this world famous urbanist and architect, his wife, in fact, who was a behavioral scientist, who was looking through one of these architectural magazines that you often see. And she said to him, why do architects hate people so much? Because all architecture uh, imagery was taken at four in the morning when there were no people around so that the, the building could look beautiful. And it was almost, if you think about it, quite crazy. It's this obsession with the building, but buildings all need to be built so that they can, you know, people can occupy them and people can use them. But there was this huge disconnect. But Jan Gull, through the, the love that he had for his wife, was able to understand her perspective and point of view to the point that changed his architectural mind and practice completely. So he stopped obsessing about the buildings and the building design and started obsessing about what he calls the spaces in between. The spaces like you see on, on this picture, which is a story of a street in Copenhagen, his hometown, that he, in the early 60s, when cars were becoming the main attraction and everyone was designing streets for cars, he thought about what that meant for, for daily life and the interaction of people and observed. And he started becoming an observer, a life observer. And that's where this saying, first life, then spaces, then buildings. The other way around never works. And I suppose you could say the same for software. First life, then interactions, then software. The other way around never works. And, and so I wanted to put that out there as a, as a provocation. But the important point around this story is that through multidisciplinary love, you can really start to get into a new generative space that starts to change practice in a way that takes what architects did and what behavioral uh, scientists did into a new realm, which is, which is the story of, of Gell, urban designers and architects. They, they really are at the forefront of creating spaces like this. I visited there. This is literally what it looks like almost daily. This isn't a, a, a staged, um, this is life in Copenhagen in, uh, uh, I forget the name of the, the, the streets in Danish. So if I told you this was an Apple product, how many of you would believe me? There we go. One believer. You always need a believer. Um, so this is an Apple product, but that's not why I'm showing this picture. Uh, it's just interesting, right, that that's an Apple product. In 96, 97, I'm not quite sure of the date, my grand... My gran got a computer. My grandmother, who will be 90 this year, got a computer. And everybody else in the family already had them. But she was really drawn to the promise of what a computer could do. Uh, for her, it was about moving away from the typewriter, which was quite frustrating as she was getting older, small, small little letters, hard to see. This held the promise of being able to edit quickly, re change the way that typing was done. 
And then later, obviously, the, the, the potential of connection, connecting to others around the world, family, friends, etc. She really, really liked what, what the potential of this object held. This is what my grandmother's computer served as in her house. I remember it was upstairs in a spare room, around the corner behind the door, and this is what it became. It became an ornament. But to the sales team at Apple, my grand's purchase was a big tick. They had achieved their conversion. She had purchased the machine. Brilliant. We've, we've achieved our objective. And maybe you did that a million times for people who are elderly. But what they never tracked is this, that it actually became an ornament. And I was thinking it's almost like buying an iPhone 12 so you can hang it from your rearview mirror. It never got used for the purpose through which it was designed, but there was excitement about the fact that it was purchased. You know, we've hit a target here. Someone's bought this thing, which is great. What they don't realize and didn't realize, there was an entire generation of people who got completely switched off technology because of this experience. Because it made them feel stupid and alienated and scared of technology. My gran has not made the leap into technology. Some, what are we now? 20 odd years later, she hasn't made the leap because of this experience. It was so alienating and made her feel stupid. She just couldn't anymore. She never confronted it. It became, it became this. So that's where I think the importance of what many of you might know, the beginner's mind comes in. The notion that, that once you are so entrenched in a particular sector or discipline where you start talking the lingo, whether it's JavaScript and da-da-da-da-da, since I've been here, it's like a new language, it's like a new planet. The, the words that get thrown out and the assumption that anybody who's in this building and in, understands this stuff, right? And that becomes alienating. And it happens in all sectors. In, in the sector that I come from traditionally, the same thing. We use jargon, we use acronyms that we've learned and we think they're cool because now we're part of the club. And all of a sudden, that's how you start talking all the time, not realizing that the, the users often that you're trying to connect to know nothing about what you're talking about. And they find it alienating and it makes them feel stupid and disconnected. So the beginner's mind becomes really, really important. Uh, and it's a very Zen thing, but it's this idea that to the beginner, the possibilities are endless because they aren't narrowed into what the solutions are already and what the biases, the cognitive biases that are entrenched in that particular discipline are. So apologies for the poor quality image, but I really wanted to share this one because it's about my own love story. It's a, it's a, it's a tragic love story. It's about love and heartbreak. So as a, as a, as a young urban planner emerging in, into a kind of a, a democratic and excited South Africa around the World Cup with transport systems changing fundamentally. So this, this introduction of, of groundbreaking transport systems that promised to really transform life for many South Africans in tangible ways, a big chunk of their life, a, a really tough, challenging part of their daily life. Um, and, and I, and I kind of drank that Kool-Aid fully. I was on board with that project. I wanted to be a part of improving public transport systems and sustainable transport systems in South African cities. That was, that was kind of my trajectory. Blinkered, biased, anybody who wasn't with me, you, you know, you guys, your perspective is wrong. This is the way to go. 
Sadly, what happened in this story is, is the buses and the station that you can see on the screen, they became the, the center of the story. And, you know, engineers delivered this. I mean, it was incredible, actually. It was a, an amazing engineering delivery. But I don't know if there's anything in the picture that you can pick up that's, like, really alarming. It should almost, like, alarm bells should be going off when you see a picture like this. They're tiny children who are stuck Climbing a barrier in the middle of what is the roadway for cars. Trying to get somewhere. And you, ask, you have to ask yourself, how did a system that was meant to improve the lives of people completely forget the people, that it was being, the, the, the people who it was being built for? Um, and, and when you speak to engineers, they still talk about the systems and how technically optimal they were and the buses and the stations and the doors and very, very disconnected from, from people who ultimately are the ones who will use the service. And so this is the kind of thing that happens in organizations. Because you become obsessed with building the station and the buses and the passenger numbers, you want to see numbers, you, you, and, and it makes absolute sense. It makes sense because you want to make things efficient and you want to drive performance. So you start setting things like this, the number of we, we want, it's either we want X in revenue or we want to deliver X products or we want, uh, we want X passengers, whatever it might be, whatever industry you see is often the success metrics are around these and they're, in, they're typically internally focused. And like I was sharing about my gran and that sale to the sales team and everyone that looked like that looked amazing because the data said it was sold. We've converted. This is brilliant. But there's something else that was going on at the end with the user, which is this point. That can we track something that involves whether we're making our customers happy or not? Whether we're actually checking, whether we, we're revisiting the things that we signed up for in the first place. And in order to get to those, those kind of objectives that, that you, you set out, those very kind of output, uh, often quantitative objectives, these are the kind of Structures that are put in place in organizations. Uh, you, you, set up, you set up teams who often set their own targets, set their own KPIs, have their own internal delivery mechanisms. Think about resources and time in terms of their own business units. So, oh, we, you know, it would be great. We know we should be talking to you, but we can't because then we have to build a client more time. And more time means that it becomes more expensive and it takes longer. And so, so these are the kinds of things that you see. And, it, and, it, and it's logical. It makes sense. And I, I just love this diagram because it's, you know, we're not going to let them kind of mingle uh, because then if we keep them separate, they'll always have somebody to blame when something goes wrong. And, and typically uh, you see this in a lot of organizations is, is the division means that there's always somebody else to kind of say, oh, that, that wasn't my responsibility. It was clearly yours. Um, and there's a disconnect from the, from the ultimate goal as a single organization, what you're ultimately delivering. So I've been exposed to something that's very powerful uh, in my years, which I wanted to share because I think it's a tool that can become very useful for organizations who are, who are, who are working every day with other people and other teams. And it's, it's, a, it's a simple kind of framework called the four ways of listening and talking. And what it is, is it's just about being aware of how you are engaging with others in your listening and your talking. And so typically, many organizations live in a downloading and debating way. So you'll listen out of, out of respect for somebody, you'll sit there and 
okay, thanks, yes, they are, okay, I hear you, that's great, but it's re like nothing's really happening. You're just there listening because you've got actually got something else to do, and, but you, they're out of respect. Or this is the most common one uh, that, that you see in, in very tense, very multidisciplinary organizations where, where disciplines are, are segregated by departments, etc., is debating. So my view, my view's right, your view's wrong. And now my task is to show you how wrong you are and, and validate how right I am. And that's debating. I mean, that's, that's, and that's almost how we taught in a way, you know, you, you taught to live in, in this space through our schooling, through our education is, is in a debate space. And it's often very, very much based on past information. It's about the past. It's about how this person, okay, I know this person's going to come with this argument. So therefore I better get my ducks in a row and then I'm going to go in for the, for the kill. And, and what's often required, especially in an innovative space and in a world where, where you're unsure about the future, is to be in the top half. It's to really kind of be in, in reflective dialogue often with empathy, so listening without judgment, thinking, thinking about how this person is arriving and understanding their worldview, where it comes from, their cognitive biases, etc. And then the really powerful one is when you're in a generative space, when you understand that that you are part of a collective, you're part of a common thing, and actually you need to be working together and listening deeply together to be able to form, and that's, where, that's the innovation space, the creative tension. When you're able to tolerate difference and understand that you're all part of the same thing, you're all part of the same organization or part of the same team, and you have clear shared objectives, etc. And so, I mean, it's just a very easy tool to apply once a week you think about okay which which quadrant am i sitting in right now how am i showing up to this conversation where am i and so at lively what we're trying to do is is really assist teams to be human-centered in their in their in their thinking often there's a problem or a challenge or a client will come with something and the default position is to start at ideas sometimes data most often ideas, most often there's a loaded idea and you're thinking, you start shooting off ideas. And then sometimes there's even a prepackaged solution that you're trying to sell before the client's even finished explaining the, the problem. And what, and what the human-centered design theory, if you like, talks about is always revisiting the human question, always going back, finding ways to go back because, because that's at the crux. Many people will talk about the time it takes. It's really frustrating to go back and we can spend endless time and get nowhere. And, and, and I really do believe that it's about finding ways to connect to the human beings you're trying to serve throughout each part of the, the decision-making process. And being iterative and, and constant, never being scared to go back there and ask questions about what will this mean for that 60-year-old person who's now purchased this computer and is actually scared and feels stupid to use it. How do we respond? And if you're there, then you're in the, then you're in the product innovation space. Then, you, then you're able to think about and grow markets because how many, people, how many people got switched off technology to the point where you actually lost huge amounts of, of markets and we're an aging society. So all of these segments of, of the market need to be thought about. I just wanted to end with this picture. So, I mean, I don't have to convince anyone in this room that our lives have changed. So life, as Jan Gal talks about, life has changed completely. And 
what that means is that people's fears, people's hopes, people's dreams, what keeps them up at night, all of that has changed. And there's some hope in every organization in the world that things will return to normal, that our customers will start to hope for the same things, dream about the same things, fear the same things, be anxious about the same things that they were in January 2020. The businesses and organizations that are going to thrive moving forward are the ones that understand that they need now more than ever to be deeply connected to the people who they claim to serve because their worlds have fundamentally changed. And those people who can connect genuinely and authentically to the realities of the people that they claim to serve are going to be the ones who thrive in our new and ever-changing uh, world. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I, I've, I've had a lot of fun making this. I've had a lot of fun presenting it. Uh, and I hope that you found it valuable and useful. And I really look forward to, to a, a lively discussion. You see what I did there? Thanks very much. Great. Thanks, everybody. Jeff, um, yeah, thank you so much for coming and chatting to us today. Um, you know, I think as an organization like SoftTech, um, you know, not just during the software sort of development life cycle, but, you know, in sales and in blueprint and, you know, all the way through to, you know, eventually handing over a product back to a client. I think, as you say, it's incredibly important to, you know, have empathy, put yourself in the client's shoes, put, your, put yourself in a position of thinking from where they are. And I think, as you say, um, having that sort of human design thinking, at least having that theory in the back of your head is, you know, an, an exceptional way to continue to grow the business as, as we're trying to do. Um, and also just to, you know, not just tick off those boxes, but ensure that we're having happy, happy clients and happy customers along the way. So just from all of us at SoftTech, we'd love to give you another uh, round of applause. Thank you very much. Thanks. Great, guys. I'm going to uh, just facilitate a few uh, questions. Um, you know, we'll try to keep them relatively general. Um, if you'd like to come up and ask a question, uh, we'll just come and stand here. Um, I know Roland's usually got one or two questions, so you can always bank on him. But I don't know if you guys want to um, pop and I'll just call you up. Z, do you want to come ask a question? Um, so, yeah, my question is fairly general as well. Um, I'm sure all of us have been in situations where we feel like the reflexes to kind of go through our own biases like you said like when you were telling your story uh that we all filtered it through our own biases what are some tips or some general practices that you feel like you we can employ to kind of distance ourselves attach ourselves from that those biases and kind of think more objectively basically yeah yeah that's my question uh yeah so that's a i mean that's a wonderful question and it's a it's it's something i also wanted to to share is that it strikes me that a lot of the design thinking work that's being done is sold kind of as design thinking, you know, so there's a package of design thinking and you come in and you apply it and then, but actually, if, if, you, if you really understand design thinking, it's, it's a cultural shift in the way in which you work. And so your question is fundamentally connected to that. It's about how do you change your daily practice yeah. in a way that makes you better able to, to make decisions in a, in a kind of human-centered way exactly, uh, yeah. that's grounded. And, and so the question's fantastic. I think that for me, uh, some practices that have been very useful uh, and others might want to share. So this is where 
Others sharing is very welcome. I mean, this isn't about, uh, I certainly don't have, have all the answers. And, I'm, and, and I would love others to actually, you know, be brave and, and share what they do. But journaling is a very useful one. If you've had a tough day, a tough encounter, a tough interaction, often the first, the first thing is to say, oh, that person, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Ross, is it Ross? Ross, it's Ross. <laughs> he, he, you know, him, oh, yeah. Ross. It's like, I can't, I can't with Ross. <laughs> but to go home then and process, how, how did I show up in that interaction? Yeah. What was my contribution? How could I have shown up yeah, differently? That's, that's big. Yeah. What is it about Ross that makes him approach a situation like that mm-hmm. it does ross understand that this is how it's making me feel yeah so often people will say um what you did was unacceptable and and you're egotistical and da 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 but what you should say is um yesterday that engagement made me feel so, now you're talking from yeah. a point of self yeah, yeah. not from a point of you you're not you're not the authority on them yeah, because what do you know about him and his thinking yeah so you're the authority very... on you this is how it made me feel and yeah. ross might have not even known that it made you feel like that now you've started a, a two-way discussion in an empathetic way that's not that's not um confrontational you're yeah. just saying this is how it made me feel you know yeah. and so that's one journaling i think and reflecting is is really important too um i mean I, yeah I, I don't know how to express this but i if you had told me 10 years ago that, that I would believe in, in meditation uh, and, and work on self and breath, I would have laughed you out the room and I would have thought, ah, you know, uh, yeah. crazy. But now I find it really, really useful to be able to you, process yeah. emotions, to stay present within myself and to be conscious and aware of, of myself. Yeah. And it, it, it's really helpful. So meditation and reflection, two really useful tools. And then one I just read about, when you get up in the morning on any day, you say, today, I'm going in as a beginner. I'm mm. going to go in as if I know nothing. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to be that annoying person who people <laughs> are like, but you know this. And you, <laughs> yeah. and you explain that, no, I'm, today, today, I'm a beginner. And I'm asking, I don't know, explain that thing to me. Why, why, why is that going to do? But this is my reality. This is, you know. So if you come in, if you deliberately once a month or once a quarter, whatever it might be, come in as a beginner, and everybody starts to do that. I guarantee you'll start to find new ways of doing, new ways of being, and, and, and start inspiring one another, I think. So I hope that answers the question. Yes, it does. Thank you so much. Eh? And anybody else, please, if you, if you have an idea or on the, on the question, uh, please just step in and share. I mean, yeah, it's not... It's not... Great, thanks. Uh, we'll take one from you there, Roland. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I do have one question, which is, is design thinking profitable for an organization? Do we have research, case studies, proving that doing these things happens to be profitable for us? Um, so, I mean, the short answer is, is yes, but research is always like dependent on the question and dependent on who's funding it and dependent what the laden things that's that's important to say so i mean you um it's it's more of a it's more of an intuitive thing so so there's many reports actually which which have tried to prove exactly that show that 
companies who are practicing empathetic design not not like design but you know are embodying design thinking in their practices in their yeah. operations are in fact generating more long-term revenue than companies that are not and they're staying alive longer because they're able to understand exactly what i was saying in the us right now empathy is massive in the corporate world why is it massive because everyone has felt the knock of being so disconnected from the customer because they exactly what i was saying everything that you Everything that you um, perceived and understood about the customer pre-COVID in an ever-changing world changed overnight. And for those who are holding on to the, the existing conditions and running their same operating models, they got really hurt. And now they're asking, okay, so, so what happened here? And how come other companies were able to quite, quite in an agile way and, and, and relatively quickly able to reorient and start servicing a market in a different way? What were they doing? And so, so that's, that's where the power of design thinking comes in. But perhaps others can answer. What do you think? I mean, uh, it's sure, it, you know, there's a fluff to this, which people mm -hmm. think, oh, this is fluffy and you can get stuck talking to people and their emotions and we don't know how to process them. But of course, if you're an engineer, you aren't schooled in processing people's emotions and understanding the softer sociology or softer. I mean, it's actually the really hard work, the, 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 the emotional human side of things. So organizations, I used to work for an engineering mm -hmm. consultancy, an inability to process that. Actually, you just want to push it aside. The less people that are involved, the better, because we want to build things. Mm -hmm. But what are you building those things for? And, and so my story about Jan Gel and his wife is so important because it's, it's the mix. Imagine you had some sociologists roaming around here at Sovtech who were able to, to check you every now and then and say, mm -hmm. Actually, how do you think this is going to fly for, for this elderly person who has X, Y, and Z in their frame? Oh, okay, that's useful. I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about how do I get this product to market as quickly as possible and get it out the door so we can invoice the client. Now, you've changed the, you've changed the dynamic of your team. And that becomes, that becomes so important, I think. Okay. So we don't make money. You make, I, think you make, I think you make more meaningful money and, and longer-term money. I hope that's clear. I hope that answer is clear. Yeah. Um, one last question is every human behavior has a dark side to it. So let's say we emphasize on empathy. What's the worst that could happen? What's the dark side of empathy? Caring too much about the client. Where do we draw the line? What are the consequences if we're not doing it correctly? So I recently read something. So did everyone hear that question? Is like, it's almost the, it's almost the like, this empathy thing is, it can be dangerous, you know? It can cost us money and time. And, and, and what happens if like we find out that actually our client might have a practice that's like unsavory and unethical and, and it takes us into a place where we don't want to know what's going on. And now what do we do with that? So the practice of empathy doesn't mean that you bind yourself to somebody. It doesn't mean that you have to marry them or you have to call them or take their calls at two in the morning because that's the kind of person that they are. It's, it's literally just the, the ability to have a heightened emotional awareness in a situation where you're able to connect with why that person is calling you at 2 a.m. Sure, you can say, this is unprofessional. We have a professional relationship. I'm not saying mm -hmm. that you need to fall in love. So there's a thing in, in empathy. They talk about falling in love a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you fall in love a little bit with people. And don't you find if you reflect on your own life in your own world, it's the people who you, and, and, and I'm not even talking about your family because obviously they influence, 
but it's the people who you love just a little bit. Not like in the way that we think about love and, and, and the world portrays it, but we love them just a little bit. Enough to, to convince us to change our mindset, to listen to them in a way that says, mm -hmm. oh, that's really interesting. I like, I like the charisma or, or what he did was, or what she did was fantastic, inspiring. I want to listen more and I want to understand. There's a little bit of love there. Mm -hmm. So you have to fall in love a little bit, but you don't have to commit to them and you don't have to be dragged into their world in unhealthy ways. There are professional boundaries. So I recently read that and I'm able to share it, which is, which is wonderful. It doesn't mean, full-on empathy doesn't mean that you, you make yourself available to all your clients and all your colleagues at all times because you, you're wanting to get to know them. It's just about changing the way that you interact, talk and listen mm -hmm. to them and show up. Yeah. And, yeah, and ask questions, those kinds of things. Sorry, I'm rambling a bit, which I do. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for the, I mean, really, really, really honest questions. I appreciate that because it's, 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 a, it's a brave thing to come and ask honest questions. I Thanks, Roland. That. And to give you context, Roland is our head of customer success. So that's why he's trying to nail down on those points there. Um, there any, other, any other questions, Jay? Um, there's a question online. Ah. There's an online question. Yes, sure. and welcome to our online Yes. yes, sorry, I meant to say that up there. front. I'd prepped myself with one of the things, like, <laughs> be aware that there's an online audience. So yeah. hello to everyone. I don't even know which camera I'm waving at. I'm not too sure. To I think it's over there. there. But yes, online question, you go for it. Um, cool. So um, I think basically, yeah, sometimes hands are tied uh, with regards to maybe more specifically product designing. And then how do you prioritize the needs that you are solving for? Um, when you can't solve their whole world, you know, um, yeah. is there any sort of advice that you would give to sort of understand which needs need to be addressed sort of um, above others? Yeah, sure. So also like a very practical question. And, and, and these are wonderful because often it makes it like, you know, you, you, you're kind of selling human centered design and intuitively it makes sense. But then yeah. for the people who are working it every day and in the nuts and bolts and are in teams and it's like, okay, we get it, but how do we actually do it? And yeah. so the, the disclaimer that I want to put on the table is that it is really hard actually to do. And it's about being comfortable with that uncertainty, what they call being comfortable with ambigu ambiguity, which is really important. Mm. So your questions are fantastic. I don't have a, an answer to say, okay, well, you know, if you focus on the ones where that, you know, the things that make them cry, focus on the things that make them cry and then you'll be successful or focus on the things that, uh, that they express as, as big concerns. I think it's about um, honoring enough of a process to say, to say uh, what, is it, what is it that our, that our customers uh, or, or users or whoever your, your kind of key stakeholder is in a process, what is it that they, um, that they are experiencing? And then allow, the lovely thing about, about authentic design thinking is that, is that you deliberately design a, um, a multidisciplinary team. So the other thing I wanted to say is that often we, and, and, and I'm digressing, but I'll come back to answer the specific question. So the, the virtual space between us is there, but, but, I'm, but I'm still with you, I hope. <laughs> is that often in, a, in an organization, you'll be a designer in a design team and people will see you as the designer. So we'll ask, you know, Josephine, what? No, she's a designer. Oh, okay, so she does design, great. But what you often don't realize is that you'll have somebody in marketing who's actually a jewelry designer and has got their own, you know, skill set that they can apply in an organization, but you don't know that because you've rendered them, oh, you're a, you're a marketer. 
And so there are a whole lot of skill sets. You know, I'm a gamer. How many, I mean, I, I hope I'm in a place where there's gamers, like people who like to go <laughs> home and game and game on weekends. And I'm a gamer. But when you come to work, you're actually in the sales team, but you're a gamer. And we, and we never draw on those things. So people often say, but like, where do we get these, where do we get these skills from? You often possess them internally. People hold different things. They, you know, somebody's mother might be a nurse and she's practiced kind of a deep empathy and, and, and care for a, for a social purpose for her whole life. And that's ingrained on you as well. And you're able to then share with a team. But we don't tap into that because I'm a designer. I have 10 hours. Uh, sometimes I work 12, but I only bill. I'm only allowed to bill eight. So I'm already stretched. Where do I find time to support this team? And, and so it's that magic, like Jan Gal says, it's the in-between spaces where the magic happens and, and where we need to work more. Um, so getting back, to the, getting back to the question, which is there's, you know, sometimes there's constraints and you can't map out everything. So what do you choose to focus on? And I think that's about honoring a process. And not, people say, oh, this guy's talking about a, a six-month process or a three-month process. It can be whatever process you've defined. So if you define it's got to be a three-hour process, work out what that process is, honor it, and then work, work through that process to see if it works or not, and iterate. If you need a longer one, or maybe you can make it shorter, mm. but, but it's about honoring the process to understand what it is that, that your product will interface with in this person's life, or could interface with. And often, that's where new product, new product development happens in that space. When you realize, oh, like this person doesn't need an app for parking, they actually need a transport mode app. They need a, they need a modal shift. Because if you change their mode, their parking thing goes away. So now we can give them mode information and shift the parking demand and enter a new space. And so the minute you start going to that point, you really start to understand where perhaps new products and services might come up. I hope I've answered the question <laughs> in a very long convoluted way. And I snuck in what I wanted to say uh, as well. So. <laughs> Let me know if I didn't answer it. If I didn't, then please. Thanks. Oh, good. Great, thanks. Um, I think we got one more question from you there, Jay. Uh, so my question really is, often when I'm explaining concepts to people, um, so rather, you started talking about how you don't want people to feel stupid. Um, you wanted them to feel part of the club. So how do you kind of get ideas and concepts across to clients or like friends and things like that without making them feel like from an arrogant point of view, without making them feel stupid. How do you make them feel part of the club? Awesome. Great question. So again, a very practical question about, so how, do, you know, in, in a, in a work situation, I'm now talking to a client, I'm trying to sell them this thing. How do I, how do I not alienate them in my delivery and make them feel like, because in an expert world, we're all trained as experts. You have to be the expert to be able to stop and say, hang on, hang on. I don't know. I don't know is a very scary realm when you're in a corporate expert environment. So seldom are your clients going to say to you, hang on, hang on, hang on. I don't know. You know, in, in many corporate environments, in many, all around the world, the sense is like, no, if I'm the manager and I'm the director or I'm the, I need to know. So even if I don't know, I'm just going to go, yes, yes, the, the JavaScript uh, and the, you know, and the blueprint. Yeah, that, that, okay, all sound great. But I actually have no idea. I, do, I don't know what you've just said to me. And now I'm going to scramble to find out and I'm going to make it somebody else's problem. And then I'm, I'm going to be left in the dark. So, so the first point of call, I think, is to connect on a, on a human level. 
So often the, the how many meetings do we have where it's, okay, welcome to the meeting. And I know it's a time thing again. I know, I know and, and this world is very time sensitive, but we had signed a meeting. Okay, here's the agenda. Let's go through, let's go through these points. We seldom introduce ourselves as like human beings. So like I'm Jeff, I have a little girl at home, I'm a father, uh, you know, I really like to ride bicycles on the weekend. Now it's a, it's a completely different thing to, I'm Jeff, I'm the executive director here at Investec, uh, which I'm not, by the way, disclaimer. Um, and, 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 I, you know, and we need to get this done, these are my pressure points. If I introduce myself as a human first, which is just a, a cool meeting technique, which doesn't mean you're not going to discuss the business, but now you've got a sense, now you can go to, hey, I also cycle on the weekend. What, you know, uh, sorry, the, what bike do you have, you know? Now you're in a different space and you're able to speak to them at, at, and you've, you've changed the nature of that relationship. So often our processes, our processes that we put in place, disconnect us from, uh, from our, our, our presence as human beings, you know? It's like, oh no, there's the director, we better, but just ask a human question and, and, and always follow up. So it, what's useful for empathy is to say, um, do you, like, do you understand what, uh, what, what I mean by blueprints? I know that it can be, be difficult to understand for people who don't work in this world. Now you've opened the door for that person to say, actually, I don't. Can you, okay, well, I've, we've got our blueprints team. They can come and, and take you through it. And I, I mean, I might, you yeah. might even be thinking our blueprints team never come in. So we never say that. But it's a hypothetical example. So you've got to think about, as, as we practiced here, you've got to think about what's that client going through? What's his pressure? What are people saying about him? You know, all of that stuff. Once you start to practice that, it changes the way you'd engage with him. Start opening the door. You literally open the door for him to ask you, I don't understand that. Can you take me through that? Okay. And make yourself available for that. And I think that then you start to change the dynamic. Right. But it's a fantastic question. It's not an easy thing to do. And we, again, we have to tap into our cognitive bias because we ourselves are showing up into a meeting also quite nervous and you want to make the sell and you want to impress and you want to deliver. And so you also don't want to be the guy who's get, you know, the phones, the, who's this guy's coming and asking me about what I'm doing on the weekend with my family. And you, you don't want to be that person, but to establish a human connection, it's a skill and you can do it at work to practice. You can do it with your colleagues in safe spaces, but yeah, that's, that's what I would suggest. Um, yeah. And just allow a different relationship to um, to develop. Yeah, of course. Great, thanks, Chef. Yeah, I think that's um, a yes. very important yes. skill for all of us to do is also just make that sort of human connection. So I'm going to be selfish and save the last question for myself. Um, so you know, what we're obviously wanting to understand is you know you've get guys that obviously have as you say they've got the intuition to be able to naturally make those uh, human connections that you know can uh, make us get through you know these kind of things what are some other tips i know we mentioned journaling and all of that but what are maybe some other tips or maybe a good opportunity to sell lively about some workshops anything like that but what are the um, yeah what are some suggestions on you know guys just to as you say work on making those connections understanding empathy a, a bit more and essentially trying to put you know yourself in someone else shoes awesome thanks luke um so what i've come to value is is the role of a facilitator some some people call it the person who wears the red hat in germany they use this to the person who wears the red hat so it's somebody who's able to um who's able to essentially like roam and 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 monitor behavior you know but not in like a 
not in like a um, boarding school kind of way, in a, in a listening to the quality of conversations, being able to check culture, yeah. you know? Um, and, and what I've come to value is the role of a facilitator mm. in doing just that. So, I mean, even myself, having gone through this journey and, and still with a long way to go, when you're, in the, when you're in it, when you're in the operation, it's very difficult to, to, to like remove yourself, you know, and it's, it's very challenging to do that. It's, mm. a, it's, it's a challenging human behavioral practice is once you like set, I've got to deliver this thing in five hours, like I'm going to go for it to then be like, oh, wait, hang on, hang on. What am I doing? Have a bird's eyed view. So the role of somebody who's able to facilitate and, um, and intervene in productive ways, not in, not in un, unproductive and yeah. combative ways, um, I think becomes really useful in organizations and you're starting to see this. So, so after the Kahneman and Tversky work, it was often, often the health fraternity because they, because they're so evidence-based in their decision-making, they're like scientific evidence-based decision-makers, the, the health, yeah. you know, sector and profession. They adopted in, in American hospitals, adopted behavioral psychologists to be on the floor roaming to monitor the behavior of expert doctors. Mm. So now these are people who've studied for, you know, I mean, anybody here who has a doctor as a friend or might be a doctor and is now here, whatever the case might be, understands, I mean, these, these, are, these are people in our society, they're like serial study, studies. They study and they, and they, for 15, 16 years. So you can imagine what happened when they started inserting these guys who were able to go and say, uh, are you sure that diagnosis was correct? Because, You've used your heuristic bio, oh, I've got a sore throat and, you know, like under my arm is sore. Oh, that means you've got whatever, whatever the medical term is. And now you had people questioning that. Mm. And it really rubbed them up in a, in a negative way. But soon they started to, they started to see the, the benefit because they were misdiagnosing so many patients based on their own heuristic bias. Sure. So that, you know, that was one of the, yeah. that was one of the, 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 the big kind of examples that that's written about is the insertion of behavioral psychologists into the, into the medical and hospital environment. Yeah. Okay. So I hope that answers the question, but it's, it is very useful to have somebody who's able to check cultural behaviors in a productive way. Sure. Yeah. Great. Well, I think that's unfortunately all the time that we have left. But again, uh, just from Subtech, I want to say thank you so much for coming and giving us this presentation. Thank you to our wonderful production team as well. Um, yeah, have a wonderful Friday. We'll go and enjoy ourselves out on the balcony, but uh, excited to get uh, our sort of new series uh, out there. And um, what a pleasure having you as our first guest. So thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you. I mean, yeah, just a big thank you to everyone who came to listen. Uh, I hope... I hope that you find it uh, enlightening and, and lively. I hope you've had a lively afternoon and, 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 your, and your thought process has been, has been challenged and initiated. Uh, and, and I look forward to, to popping in and, and uh, making myself... Uh, yeah, ex exactly, exactly. So thanks very much for the opportunity. I've loved it. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you.